and welcome back to Biblical Time Machine. We are the podcast that explores the history of the Bible, the people, the places, all of that cool stuff. Um, I am one of your hosts, Dave Roos. I am a journalist who likes to write about these things, and I am here, as always, with my co-host, Helen Bond, professor of Christian origins and head of the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh. Helen, how are you doing today? Hi there, Dave. I'm doing really well, thank you. And as always, I'm very excited about our our guest today. So why don't you tell us all about her? Yeah, well, before I introduce Carol, um, let's talk about the topic today. So I think sometimes when we think about, you know, women in ancient times and women in ancient Israel in in particular, we kind of have these preconceptions. We might think that they were, you know, oppressed, that they, that they lived in a rigid kind of patriarchal society where they, they were kind of ruled by their husbands and other men in their, in their spheres. And, and that may or may not be the case. It's, it's, you know, difficult to tell outside of the Old Testament, um, you know, what this world was like, but that's why we found the woman who has, who's done so much research and work on this, we have Carol Myers. Carol is the Mary Grace Wilson Professor Emerita of Religious Studies at Duke University, which was my alma mater. You know, that's important. Um, and, and Carol, among many books, is the author of Rediscovering Eve, Ancient Israelite Women in Context. So hello, Carol. Welcome to the podcast. Hello there, Dave. Hi, Helen. Nice to be with you this morning. Thanks for being here, Carol. Um, so, you know, for our audience and, and for myself, maybe we could start with some of the basics. So, you know, you write about ancient Israelite women. So kind of who are we talking about? What time period? What part of the world are we talking about when we say ancient Israelite women? We're talking about the Iron Age, and that's a kind of a technical term, iron as opposed to bronze. But it it begins, the Iron Age begins with a technological change. That is when bronze is more or less slowly replaced by iron as the metal used to make tools and weapons. Mm-hmm. And that is roughly around 1200 BCE in the East Mediterranean. And we're talking now the place is the East Mediterranean, the land of the Bible, the Holy Land, Western Asia. It can be called a number of different things. Sure. So, Obviously, for you know the longest time, we had one source for you know life of what life would have looked like for these ancient Israelite people and ancient Israelite women in particular. You have the the Hebrew Bible. Um, why is the Hebrew Bible you know kind of limited, limited or limiting in its in its ability to tell us about what the ordinary lives of ancient Israelite women were like? Why is it not, you know, the ideal source? Well, there's a, there's a number of different reasons. And if we had all day, I could go <laughs> into all of them, but I will try to, to um, summarize it briefly. Um, one is that the Bible really has a national scope, a national purview in mind. It's looking at this people, at it, its rulers and so on. And we enter, we encounter, therefore, mainly men. The, the people that the Bible talks about, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament talks about, most of them are public figures that have something to do with the nation Israel. 
We read about judges and kings and warriors and prophets and priests and sages. And except for a few prophets or sages, all those people are men. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you a very striking statistic. There are a lot of names of people in the Bible. Only about 6 to 8% of the named people in the Hebrew Bible are women. That's fewer than mm-hmm. 1 in 10. Mm-hmm. And there's certainly an absence of information about women in the Hebrew Bible. And those that we do encounter are likely to be unusual women, the, the matriarchs, upper-class women, the, the um, wives of kings, uh, those kinds of people. So we know almost nothing about ordinary folk. And I would say ordinary men as well as mm. ordinary women um, from the pages of the Bible. Well, and who wrote the, who wrote those biblical books? As best we can tell, most of the authors, if not all, were men. So, would you really want to write the history of a group of women if you never heard from them themselves? Mm. And that's the situation that we have with the Bible. Sure. I'll take this one further. Not only were the authors mainly, if not all, men, they were elite men. Mm. I mean, they were literate. Those were the very few people could read and write, and there's elegant, beautiful poetry and narrative in the Bible, and that would certainly be a product of the elites who would have the education. Um, and a lot of the, we might want to come back to this later, but a lot of the regulations in the Pentateuch are about slaves and servants, hmm. and most ordinary folk did not have slaves and servants. And that, that kind of shows us the elite orientation. And to push that one step further, those elites were probably urban elites because that's where there would be scholarship and literature to a limited amount. Um, most of them seem to have been in the capital, Jerusalem, and they were not in the kind of communities, which you, we can talk about in a little while, the small farming communities in which as many as 90% of the population that um, lived in ancient Israel. Now, with a text like the Hebrew Bible and, and other kind of religious texts, how how much of a challenge is it to kind of divorce the theology of the scripture from the actual society that these people lived in? You know, is it the case that maybe they make, say, a lot of commandments and rules in the text, but was that, do we know if that, if they were followed like that in, in real life on the ground? I think that in general, there's a disconnect, and this is not just the Bible, but in general, between images of women in official theological literature, mm. authoritative literature, and information from other sources. And I want to give you one really great example. It's my favorite example. It comes from Egypt, actually, from a small Coptic community called Jema, which flourished in the 7th or 8th centuries CE. Coptics are Christians, Egyptian Christians. And in the 7th century, a prominent bishop, whose name was Pisentius, we know about this because some of his, some of the um, scrolls and papyri with his writings on them have been recovered from ar- by archaeology in Egypt in a monastery not too far from Jaina. He gave a sermon one Sunday in the 7th century, and in that sermon, there's a strong statement about the proper conduct of women, and you might imagine what his exhortations said. 
they were in keeping with negative views of women in the theological literature of the seventh Christian literature of the seventh century about women as secondary. Women shouldn't talk to men shouldn't talk to women other than their wives. Women shouldn't talk to men other than their wives. Their head they should be covered, and so on. And he counseled men to control their wives. But this is the great thing about archaeology. A University of Chicago excavation of this site discovered a treasure trove of data, written data, um, potsherds with inscriptions on them, scraps of papyrus. And they tell a different story. These are the everyday transactions of a community with legal and economic documents. And in those documents, we see women at work. They were participating in as businesswomen, fully, they were participating fully in the legal and economic life of the community. In other words, there was a gap between this authoritative religious theological text, a sermon, and what was really going on in everyday life. So we know about this, by the way, from Assyriology, from classical studies, from medieval studies, um, all kinds of historical documents we can see that the theology and the daily life don't don't necessarily or ever maybe coincide. So mm-hmm. the Bible, as one of these authoritative theological documents, cannot be expected to tell us about what life was like for everyday men and women. If, if we're talking about the Hebrew Bible, so if the if the Hebrew Bible and, and the stories don't contain a lot of information or really much of anything about the like you said the ordinary lives of women, you know, how do we begin to reconstruct what a woman's life would have looked like, you know, 3,000 years ago? What other sources do you turn to? Well, archaeology, I think I mentioned that already, archaeology, and I'm an archaeologist, I'm a field archaeologist. Well, I was until until I got too old to do all that that digging and (laughs) and hauling. But archaeology is really important. There's a caveat to that because as archaeology emerged in the 19th and through the late 19th through the 20th and into the 21st centuries, it's very often been guided by the Bible. And by that, I mean, it's tried, tried, has tried to excavate sites that are mentioned in the Bible. And very often the goal in doing that is to try to reflect back on the Bible. If any quote, if you could see me now, I would be making air quotes, <laughs> prove that what's in the Bible actually happened. Mm. And in doing that, where did archaeologists go? They went to the large sites that are mentioned in the Bible, the urban sites. And they like to excavate walls, and they like to excavate palaces, and they like to excavate temples, not only because that might correlate to the Bible most easily, but also it makes better press. Mm-hmm. That is, people want to read about finding golden things in palaces and so on. And the ordinary objects of everyday life are not so interesting to the public. Now, that's the caveat. Thankfully, in recent decades, archaeologists have turned more and more um, specifically to what we call household archaeology. that is trying to unearth the remains of the small dwellings in which most of these 90% of people who were farmers in which they live. And in so doing that, we find the tools of everyday life. Uh, we 
find the, the size of houses. We can start to estimate family size on the basis of that. But hmm. there's, there's a problem with excavating households with respect to gender. And that is when you find an artifact, it doesn't say on it who used it. Hmm. It's not, as we like to say, gender noisy. So how do you know if you find a specific kind of tool, whether it's a man's tool or a woman's tool or something that that both may have used? And furthermore, to push that a little further, how do you know if you can say this is a woman's tool and therefore women did such and such? How do you know what that meant that she had that role in the family life? Now, in addition to archaeology, you, you talk in your books about ethnography or ethnographic information. What what are we talking about when you, when you say ethnography? Scholars have been doing this now for decades, looking at information about village life in communities that have been more or less untouched by modernity. Hmm. Now, it's virtually impossible today, but there are there were ethnographers out there, you know, 50, even 100 years ago who made copious notes about villages in Turkey, Syria, mm. Palestine, uh, in, in places where, with a very similar environment, the same kind of lifestyle as would have to been existed in ancient Israel. And we also have travelers' reports from those late 19th throughout the 20th century. And using those materials, um, we've been able to kind of get a glimpse at who used the various tools and what it meant. But I, I would also go back now to the Bible for a second, because how do we know who used certain tools? Well, the Bible may not be reliable for social structure and social dynamics, but it does give us important information about mundane aspects of life. So we can tell that if we find grinding stones, a woman, all, and we know this from ethnography, but and other ancient Near Eastern texts, but also from the Bible, because when it talks, whenever it mentions a few times grinding, it's a woman who is doing that. Mm. And the same thing with several other um, kinds of artifacts that we find. So using this archaeological data, along with ethnographic observations, and also a scattering of biblical references, we can kind of put those pieces together and make the best possible uh reconstruction of life for women and for men, I would say, although I haven't done the men, but I think people could do the same thing for them uh, in the world of the Hebrew Bible. And so uh, what would, what were women's lives like? I mean, what, what, what would be your sort of overview or your reconstruction? My overview is that I wouldn't want to have been one. Mm. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It was, it was same thing for men. It was, it was difficult. Now I mentioned grinding a few minutes ago. And it's almost certain that women, as is still true today in many parts of the world, that women were the, the family members who took the grains that were grown mostly by men out in the fields, and they turned the grains into a form that could be made into food. In other words, the grains themselves are almost inedible. They need to be ground into flour, and then the flour needs to be mixed with water or whatever else, and then baked in ovens, okay? So women are the ones who are doing this. And we know from ethnographic observations and estimates, um, people have calculated how much flour would be needed 
to feed a family of four to six um, every day, to make enough bread to feed them every day. And it's calculated that it took three to four hours of grinding hmm. every day with the technology wow. that existed in the Iron Age in order to feed a family of four to six. But keep in mind that the caloric intake in the Iron Age and in most parts of the world, the develop, un, the developing world, I guess I should say, uh, was the caloric intake was 75% carbs. <clears throat> that is bread or flour or, or um, gruel, some kind of porridge would have been the mainstay of the diet. Bread was the diet, the mainstay of the diet. And, uh, you know, I've read some documents about colonial Canada, for example, or uh, medieval France. And it talked about uh, people eating two to three pounds of bread a day. <laughs> we, we can't imagine that today uh, in, in the Western world or the developed world where we try to avoid all that. But it was a lot of hard work every day. And that was just for one aspect of what a woman, woman needed to do. And I could add the other chores to that, and you'll see what a full and difficult day it would have been. All right, so if if four hours a day this woman is... Well, maybe three, if you're really good at it. Okay, if you're, if you're really good, you can squeak it out in three hours a day of of, of uh, sweat and <laughs> grinding this, this but then you, have to, you have to add the other... I mean, there are other things that need to be done. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, too, after, so, so after those three hours are taken up, wait, what are the other, you know... Well, then you have to you have to actually make the bread, mm -hmm. knead it, let the dough rest. You have to form it into loaves. You have to take it to you have to bake it, and then there there's in harvest season, women and children along with men were out in the fields um, picking grapes or olives. Uh, so there were, there are a myriad of tasks. Some of them were seasonal. Um, women also were responsible for all the textiles that a family needed clothing, coverings, uh, sacks, bags. Women probably made the ovens in which bread was mm. baked. Uh, they, they made a lot of the tools that were used. They, the tools that they needed themselves, they probably learned how to make them. At least some women were specialists in doing that. So it was seasonal, um, what things were done during a day, but a day, the day was pretty full. Do you, do you think women do you think women sort of get together to share tasks so um i mean i know we're probably thinking of larger households aren't we but you well, know would we have a situation I, where somebody's looking after the children well, we, whilst somebody else does something else we actually have good archaeological evidence for this yes um women did not if you had to do something for three hours it would be probably bo really boring especially if it mm. was a physical activity where you weren't didn't have to focus your attention on something. I know we sit at computers for three hours without moving, but that's a whole different story. No, um, we many households that have been excavated have the archaeologists have found more than one set of grinding tools side by side, which is really powerful evidence that more than, that women were grinding next to each other. And this is well known in the ethnographic literature that when tasks are very owner, a onerous and b time consuming, that women found ways to do them side by side next to each other. And it, you know, they didn't have a radio, they didn't have a television, they didn't have the internet, you know, whatever. They they 
had to quote unquote entertain each other. Now, do you want me to talk about what they talked about? Talked about? Yeah, I want to know. <laughs> Let me ask you about that. Yeah, so so yeah, these women are getting together. How? Yeah, I guess how do we? How can we guess at what they're talking about? Or is this something that comes from, like you said, the ethnographic data? Like, kind of what do village ladies talk about when they're grinding flour and baking bread? <laughs> Surely. <laughs> well, if you could if you could think about a group of women, you know, quilting together, um, what are they talking about? And what does ethnography say? Well, a range of things, but certainly included would be, you know, family information. Oh, my son, you know, did his first cutting down a tree yesterday, or my daughter finally learned how to get the bread the right consistency. Um, or they would certainly say if there was a problem. And they, if their husband hurt his leg and he couldn't go out and do the plowing, or if a woman just had a baby and she couldn't quite get up to get her, her grain prepared, her bread prepared. So these, these places, grinding stones, ovens, where women congregated, where women were together, um, formed what anthropologists call, and I've adopted that language, informal women's networks, that these were forms of communication among families so that families knew what some of the the challenges were to other families. And what do we human beings usually do when we hear about problems? We try to help. And that's almost certainly what they did. We know this epigraphically, that that's what happened. These families became what might be called mutual aid societies. Mm. So you send your oldest son over to help if the husband can't, you know, go out in the fields, or you send your daughter over with a basket of food. Um, you know, the casserole, so to speak, gets mm-hmm. brought over to help out a, a family in need. And we're talking about a society without government services, without social services. So prob- if families have problems, the only solution is from other problems, not from some outside source. And this is very typical of small-scale societies like ancient Israel. And would you would you call this a patriarchy? I mean, that's how it would normally be uh, described, or at least not often when people are talking about um, women in ancient Israel. Do you think that's a, the right term? Or, or, I mean, what you've just been describing now doesn't sound particularly patriarchal. It, it, I, I have been struggling with how to get that across for, for yeah. many years now. No, I think patriarchy is an unfortunate term. I think it implies a, a hierarchy, and you're up, either at the your men are at the top of it, and women are at the bottom of it. It's very static. Um, it's not a flexible term at all, and I think it gives the wrong impression because society was much more um, fluid and, and changing, and the things that men and women change with respect to age or, or time of year and so on. And the term patriarchy also gives the impression that men controlled everything. Mm. Now, we know that there were male servants, male slaves, um, women and men, and they had no power. They were not in charge of things. And it, it, the term also occludes the ways in which, in certain settings, women were in charge. Uh, certainly in, in many household tasks, women were in charge. They were an important part of the household economy. And that's occluded 
if you say that men were dominant. Uh, we have to find a way to talk, to, to understand any society as being more complex than just saying men dominated everything. Sure. And I, I found a, um, a term that a colleague of mine, an anthropologist at the nearby day, you'll let me say the University of North Carolina at mm, Chapel okay. Hill. Yeah, just this one time. On the air. Uh, just one time. Okay. An anthropologist there began to use a term called heterarchy, in which she um, tried to show that there could be different hierarchies within one society. So that, mm. for example, in the priesthood, um, there would be a chief priest, and that chief priest would be in charge of everybody, of all the lower priests. But it also recognizes that there were men who couldn't be priests at all, so that they would be outside of that realm. Uh, it, re it would recognize that in certain aspects of daily life, women were in charge. And that doesn't mean that, that men weren't didn't have the prominent roles in society as a whole, but rather that women, in terms of the household economy, um, managed daily life. And there are, there are examples of ethnographic examples of this all over the place that was just never recognized or named as, as such. So I, I'm, I'm in favor of finding a way to talk about the complexities of daily life in the Iron Age in ancient Israel or anywhere in which these different structures um, existed. I, I'm not saying there was gender equality, but I'm saying there were areas of life in which women were in control and some where they weren't. And if you want to get into talking about sex, that's probably a place where there was male dominance. Mm. Well, yeah, before we talk about sex, um, you <laughs> you mentioned priests. Um but have you, I mean, have archaeologists or again looking at ethnographic kind of examples, have you found places where women would have had control of an element of sort of the religious or ritual life? Like were there things that would have happened in the household maybe that the woman would have been the lead for? Absolutely. <clears throat> I've mentioned food a number of times. Well, food was not simply a um, an inert substance that people put in their mouths. There was a there was a religious dimension mm. to food. It was a sacral sacral element of daily life. If you didn't have food, you didn't live. Um, interestingly, in Egyptian Arabic, the word "ash" is the word for food, and it also means life. Mm. Um, food was sacred. Uh, there's one really interesting ex ethnographic example of this. Um, to this very day, in some parts of the Middle East and Asia Minor. If people dropped a morsel of bread on the ground, they didn't just throw it in the garbage. They picked it up and kissed it and put it in some safe place. Mm. Food was sacred. And so in making the food and in serving the food, women were part of a ritual, ritual dimension of daily life. Uh, there is um, some decent evidence that every meal was accompanied in some way by offering a little bit of the food to the ancestors, the ancestral gods. It's mm. hard to tell what, but that that um, mealtime was was a ritual time. Uh, I know we have vestiges of this today when people say grace before meals or after meals or, or both, but that probably goes back to antiquity. A meal was not just 
um, nourishment. It had a ritual dimension. But perhaps the most important ritual dimension of everyday life, which almost certainly was a woman's domain, was reproduction. So giving birth is not a 100% foolproof um, kind of female activity, as even in the modern world, and all the more so before the rise of modern medicine. Now, what did people the world over do about this? Well, they developed uh, rituals, protective measures that they thought would, would help. They believed that anything that happened to, to a baby was caused by a demon, um, infant mortality, a, 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 a bad spirit had somehow entered the house. And there's a fascinating array of rituals that have been identified in um, pre-modern Near East that show what women did to try to protect their their children, protect themselves when they were pregnant, Mm -hmm. help themselves get pregnant in the first place, and um, try to ensure that they would have the number of children that they needed to do the, the household work. Kids didn't go to school as soon as they were old enough. They were part of the household workforce. Now, you couldn't survive without children to work. So reproduction was critical to survival in a way that those of us in the developed world can't really even fathom. All right. Well, I wanted to ask you about this. What do you make of the supposed curse in Genesis 3.16? Of course, this is when... They are Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden, and and God turns to the the serpent and curses the serpent and curses the ground for making you know it hard to grow food, and then he turns to Eve and seems to curse her to be you know dominated and subservient to her husband. So what do you make of that? God tells the woman she's not yet named um, that what her life is going to be like after they primal couple leaves and goes into leaves Eden and goes into the real world of hard work. And they say that she's going to have hard work and many pregnancies. Uh, that's a correction of the traditional translation. I don't necessarily want to get into that now, but then there's those, this famous or infamous last line um, saying that, that she'll be dominated by her husband. Mm. And yes, that's what the text says. But you have to understand something about Hebrew poetry. That's a four-line poem, Genesis 3.16. And Hebrew poetry works according to principles of parallelism. So that one line will then, in the second line, the second line will kind of repeat what's in the first line with somewhat different language to kind of enhance or move the meaning along. And the, the line about Domination in childbirth is not about, is it not that line is about domination in childbirth, not about domination in life in general. Mm. It's not a general statement about men controlling women and everything. It's only about men having the last say about sexuality and women becoming pregnant. Mm. Well, and yeah, you said, I mean, it's sort of a controversial take, but referring back to what we talked about earlier is there a chance as with a lot of theological texts you know what's what's kind of written in these official scriptures is not necessarily what life was like on the ground in these in these societies i mean i don't know if this is an example of where you think that that was the case but 
what what's what's your what's your reading of that do you think this really was were women you know at least sort of did not have a say in in their in their reproduction yeah i i think that that's that's probably true um what i will say is that whatever god says to the woman then cannot be called a curse Hmm. the cur the word curse is not mentioned when god says something to adam to the man about what his life will be like it's not found in the text when god speaks to the woman Hmm. the only two things that are cursed in that is the ground because the ground is not the most fertile and well-watered ground in the world people must have felt that there was something wrong with the ground Hmm. and the snake who is a a a dangerous creature so there's no curse of eve that's one of the many um, misconceptions about the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. Hmm. Well, Carol, like you said, man, we could we could sit here and, and talk about this for a long time. I, you know, I I really appreciate you coming on and and painting this, you know, more more subtle picture um, and realistic picture of of what life would have been like for ancient Israelite women. Like you said, I don't think any of us would would want to trade places with them, but. They were clearly, um, you know, critical and and and, and influential. Uh, they had influential roles to play within their households, within their villages. The way they communicated, you know, important information through these these you know informal networks and and like we've all experienced with our own mothers and sisters and grandmothers. I mean, they are they make these these families whole. And so, um, thank you for for shining more light on uh, what we can and cannot know about them. And, and, you know, just thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been really fun to talk to both of you today. Well, this has been another episode of biblical time machine. Thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next time. Bye. Hello out there. Loyal biblical time machine listeners. We would love to hear from you. So go to our website, biblicaltimemachine.com, and send us an email. Let us know what topics you want us to cover, and we'll get right on it, we promise. Or if you're a Twitter person, look us up on uh, the Twitter and send me a tweet or however that works, and we'll also get right back to you. All right, we'll see you then.